another day in quarantine. I know, right? What has been, um, I guess, your quarantine purchase? Landscaping, if we can count that. Yeah, we can count that. Mine, <laughs> mine has been. Um, I got, I got some new new sneakers, Brooks running okay. shoes, and uh, I have, I have like super flat feet, so it's hard to find shoes that actually work for me. And I actually found a pair, so I'm. That's my quarantine purchase. Nice. So start putting in the miles today. Yeah, yeah. Thinking of the. <laughs> Don't you run a whole bunch? A little bit, yeah. So I actually recently just did the four by four by forty eight challenge. Um, so you run four miles every four hours for forty eight hours straight. Um, so you start, you know, if the first one you started at noon, you're mm-hmm. starting your second run by four p.m. regardless of when you finish the first one. Ooh, that sounds rough. Yeah, it was. Um, the second night was the worst for sure. Those last couple um, hurt. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't. I don't run too much. I guess I'm a meathead, so gym time all the time. Okay. Well, yeah, now that'll change. You got some fancy shoes, so now that can change. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm walking a lot more, which is which is good. Awesome. Cool. So, so yeah, I think. We wanted to talk a little bit about fishing this week. Yeah, man. So I, I guess to start, before we even start, what what's your definition of fishing? Yeah, so I, I guess to try and put some borders on it, at least for this discussion, I would say uh, an email message, or maybe we can expand to include instant messaging, but a text-based message coming in, uh, attempting to trick a user into doing something that may or may not be in their best interest. That's a good definition. I like that. Okay. So we can use that as a working definition. I think the, the instant message one, I wanted to try and add that in, in addition to the typical emails. Right. Uh, More so just based on some of the headlines that have been coming out in the last few weeks, I think that'll be worth uh, including once we get into some of these actual scenarios. Yeah, 100%. So I guess my next question to you after we define this is really, why does it still work? Yeah, um, you know, we, we were just talking about strengths and weaknesses, right? And a lot of this tends to focus on technical controls. We're talking about different pen test things, right? And well, that's, you know, exciting and you look at having all these different tools and technologies put into place, the human element still tends to be the weakest part. And if we're talking about emulating a realistic threat, you know, if we can spend a couple hours writing an email based on what we saw on Facebook from some of your employees, that's going to be a lot more efficient for breaking into your network than trying to find some zero-day vulnerability in your firewall. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's, it's social engineering, the aspect of breaking trust. That's that's what I that's what I think of it as. Like, how can I misuse your trust in X scenario for my benefit? 
Um, I think that's also another way to think of phishing or social engineering just in general is the malicious ability to take your trust and apply kind of like an adversary tactic to it. Yeah, so I think that's fair. And even, you know, trust is probably the biggest one you exploit, but just emotional reactions in general, because a lot of times, you know, we'll try and get a sense of urgency applied or even, and maybe this does circle back to trust, but some sort of sense of authority so that even if the end user that we're attacking in this scenario they may not really trust what I'm saying, but they may be afraid of, you know, the institutional or organizational um, consequences with not going along with the scenario. Well, I think there's more to it that what you just explained, this trust is more along the lines of trust, like power. Like I have power over this individual in this position and you need to react accordingly, according to that type of authority. I think there's also a second type of authority where you're the the truth of the knowledge, right? Like a network administrator might not have authority over other individuals, but as a network administrator, you have the authority over the domain of your network. So if you can send something or you can spoof that in become that quote-unquote authority over that network uh that's the that's the second type of authority that second type of trust that you're trying to trying to break yeah i'll I'll go with that i guess i was looking at too narrow of a, a definition of trust but um i'm good with that yeah i mean part the only reason why i bring that up is when i came into ics cybersecurity my skew my my vision of what phishing looked like was skewed it was skewed to i'm not saying that your idea was too narrow but it was skewed to what i thought it should be and from there i'm like wait hold on in ics cybersecurity not everybody the it security analysts don't have control over the domain of the operational network. But if you can now spoof the authority saying, I saw the this security alert, or maybe another scenario is I'm an ICS cybersecurity vendor and I'm sending you your new license. Um, that's the trust and authority that I try to emulate in my phishing scenarios. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think that's something that's worth spending a few minutes talking about is, you know, with that ICS industry, you know, that I feel like that is an area that can face some really different threats from something like financial services. Uh, You know, what is, so you mentioned that vendor licensing, is that a big pretext that you use? And I know, you know, last episode you talked a bit about how there are the different networks and there's it seems like there's a much bigger reliance on those vendors as part of day-to-day operations um you know is that something that you go after a good amount 
Um, not always. Uh, sometimes it's hard to emulate or try to spoof being the vendor because the the ICS organization, the asset owner, has so much uh, need of that vendor that if you come in during a penetration test and you try to break that trust, it doesn't bode well for the asset owner because now the operators are trying to determine whether this information coming from ABB or Schneider Electric or Schweitzer is the information that they should be looking at. Um, I try to actually utilize a different point of view. Asset owners, like many other large organizations, they put out RFPs and RFIs for, for new and larger projects. And, you know, you do some fingerprinting on a client and you'd be absolutely astounded how much information they put out there just for an RFP, right? You're looking at network diagrams. You're looking at like what they propose the solution should be. And then you're also having these vendors come in. Uh, vendors meaning like, like Dragos. Dragos would be a vendor to an RFP, a different type of RFP, but an RFP nonetheless. And the information can be, they put it on like a SharePoint. And if their SharePoint isn't guarded enough, you can actually look at those network diagrams and such. And then all of a sudden you have an authoritative source. You have, you have that, like, uh, that knowledge, that source of knowledge that you can't really make up like a network diagram. Hey, I'm looking at this network diagram that we put together for you. Um, can you open it? I think I made a, an error. Can you look at this? Boom. They open it. Let's say it's macro enabled and you get credentials or you get a, a shell on the network. It's, it's one of those things where you're trying to go and gather and find some sort of information that you can't just make up. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I'd say, a pretty big issue, right? If that's kind of a whole new level of open source intelligence, if you're not just going to something like LinkedIn, where maybe a network admin was too detailed in their responsibilities description for their job, right? That's something that can actually get you a good amount of system information. But if you're able to find something like an open SharePoint with uh, you know, network diagrams and descriptions of issues, that's going to give you a whole new level of authority when you're reaching out to those actual employees. Right. And and you come in as a vendor or you come in as somebody who's trying to help them. And all of a sudden you're, you're inside the network and you're like, man, that it was hard and it was easy at the same time. Why is it like this? And I guess that's why that's why we have this topic this week is just like, why does phishing still work? And I and as I'm discussing this with you, I don't have a lot of these conversations with my other colleagues. Everything is kind of surrounded around like uh, technical issues of ICS protocols and such. But once once you get back and you get to out of the meta and you start asking about categories, like wide, broad categories, like why does phishing still work? Um, I think it helps me understand it better. And it also helps me 
convey this information to asset owners and my clients? Yeah, and one of the things I I always bring up when I end up talking about fishing and well, how do we stop it, right? So there's, you know, a lot of people, you'll have some technical controls to, you know, get rid of the low hanging fruit. So the, the widespread spam and really, you know, that the junk email uh, that's not really targeting an organization. You can get rid of those with technical controls. Right. And then, you know, the other one that was big a few years ago was that, and I'm sure still is successful, but I would imagine to a lesser extent is things like the CEO fraud where you're pretending, you're basically changing the um, display name on an email and just saying, hey, we need you to wire this money quickly, right? Maybe you have um, a URL or a, a domain that's similar to your company's domain, um, but it's, you know, you're impersonating a person. I think that is probably successful to a lesser extent now, just because a lot of folks have, you know, warning banners and subject line indicators right. of external emails, right? Um, you can certainly get around to those. And, and that's one of the scenarios, uh, you know, I've tried to, to bring up more is intentionally sending from something like a Gmail or other freely available email and just add in the little, you know, sent from my iPhone signature line. And part of your pretext, if you're trying to impersonate someone, is that you're having PC issues. So I won't be reachable for the next few hours and try and then make that external warning now sound legitimate, right? Because like, oh, right. yeah, Harry's emailing me from his Gmail. He's having computer issues. Now, if they went to check, you know, hopefully they're looking at something like, uh, you know, Slack or Skype or whatever you use for your phone system and they see hey, you're online there and they can check with you. But more often than not, uh, you know, again, folks have the trust that, well, hey, they're reaching out to me. You know, he'll, he'll let me know when he's back up and running. Um, and then, you know, depending on what the email has, maybe I can get them to, you know, click on a link or uh, if it's something like a combined test, yeah. you know, where we're looking at um, physical security along with um, the social engineering now someone shows up saying they're from, you know, the, the ISP Comcast of Verizon or whoever. Hey, Harry sent me that, that email this morning saying he was having computer issues, but they were coming by to, you know, make the, the Internet speed at this office faster. You know, now that seems a little bit more legitimate. Yeah, I like that. I have a question for you. How, how many of your phishing exercises are strictly email like do your clients not want exploits being ran like htas and stuff like that or and then also my next question on top of that is how many of them are combined with physical yeah so i'd still say there's a pretty good majority where social engineering testing is being run as its own you know standalone project um, so that would be something like uh, we're sending phishing emails with, you know, a link uh, basically validating just that human element of, you know, roughly how susceptible are our end users to this testing. Uh, you know, it kind of gets you that um, that baseline to start working off of. Um, 
Probably next most common would be including the phishing testing. Uh, and this could be, you know, this is where we start to combine some of the physical and phone-based testing into a network pen test where we're trying to um, start to get closer to what a realistic threat may look like. It's certainly not getting to the point of red teaming where, where that's a much bigger you know, project, but starting to say, um, you know, put together pieces where we can send an email and maybe we're cloning a web page to harvest credentials. We're then using those credentials as part of the network pen test to show, hey, someone can send an email like this, your users divulged credentials, whether they clicked on a link or, or whatever. And then from that standpoint, we use those credentials. We could then access, you know, these few web-based utilities and then you know start to move throughout your your larger network um, or just here's the type of data at risk maybe we couldn't get any farther than this one system but you know here's what that credential actually grants access to another thing to consider um just because you brought up network pen testing uh what we like to do with our clients is we try to remove barriers of entry so we might start off with phishing and say, hey, you know, are we able to do anything from a phishing point of view as far as gain those credentials and stuff? But the moment we're done with that, we remove the barrier of entry of actually breaching the network and we're already inside the network. Yeah, and that, you know, that's almost like the assumed breach model, right? Where it's, you can save the time, um, right? Hey, we've shown with this first test, this can happen. Um, now it's kind of skip a couple steps and then be more efficient with, you know, what happens then. Yeah, definitely. And how much do you find yourself doing a lot of uh, client recon in order to do this? Or do you think that a majority of the time you, you can do it, you know, do some client recon in about a couple hours and have a, a strong enough pretext to start the exercise? Yeah, I mean, it It really depends. I mean, when folks are starting to look at this type of testing, if they've never done anything before, you know, you can start out almost with the assumption the results are going to be pretty bad, but you want to have a foundation that you can then train off of. So in those cases, I like to start with something really simple like, kind of the typical, the FedEx, you received a package, click here for the tracking, uh, your Amazon order is messed up, something like that, where maybe they use their corporate email for those things, but more likely than not, that should stick out as suspicious from day one. Then where I see more of that recon time going in is folks that have a mature program in place where their end users you know, are tested fairly frequently, they're getting pretty good results, now you want to start to look at, well, what does really a, a dedicated attacker look like? So that's when we start to uh, crawl different social media sites for employee information and put together a more realistic pretext of, hey, we went to LinkedIn, we saw your network admin, you know, has a three page long role description where they've outlined every piece of technology they've been responsible for managing at your organization. And here's the type of scenarios that we can build based on that. Another thing that I, I want to add 
to just because we're talking about client reconnaissance and social media identifying and finding kind of uh, a bad badges like uh, some some organizations do a lot of volunteer work and stuff and they tend to have their badge on them when pictures are being taken and I've been able to put together both a phishing and physical social engineering exercise by actually combing Facebook, finding that on the organization's page and <laughs> taking the the JPEGs, blowing them up and then printing off the a, a new badge because I was able to get that good of a picture to create this pretext. Yeah, that, that's another point in the column of combining those different testing avenues, you know, to build, hey, this is a very real threat you could be facing. These photos are out there. Maybe the employees don't know any better about, you know, especially, you know, you see that a lot with like new hire postings, right? I'm so excited to be starting my job with Microsoft and it's a picture at their desk with their whole welcome kit. You know, it's maybe a hoodie and a Yeti cup and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But then there's also their employee badge front and center. The, the, the worst one I have, um, I don't know, we've spoken about it. Cybersecurity is my second life. I've had a career before this and I have a whole bunch of nursing friends and stuff. And every time they get a new job, they always post a picture of their badge on the internet. And I always, without, without fail, I always have to DM them and be like, you should take that down. And they're like, why? And then I explain it to them. And next thing you know, a minute later, that post is taken down. Well, that's good. So you're having an impact. They're listening. <laughs> yeah, at least they're listening. Um, so at what point does click rate not matter anymore? Because I feel that five, six years ago, when uh, we were first starting getting into this and there was a lot of phishing exercises being done, all the CISOs cared about was like click rate. We need to have 0% click rate. Now with all this technology and all this knowledge as the field is growing, should we care about click rate anymore? Yeah, I mean, so to an extent, it's definitely a metric worth tracking. Um, but the item I come across is people looking to get their click rate as like the end all be all. And, and Really, you know, once you get to a certain extent, if you're getting 0% clicks on a fish, you're probably not designing a good enough email. Um, you know, you're probably staying with those default templates from the tool or, you know, the really generic, hey, I've got a million dollars I want to give you type of scenarios. Uh, you know, what I see is, you know, like a, a really good rate for that is probably around the three to five percent um, you know where you're getting some folks that are going to click on it because you really you know always will have a few but most of the folks are spotting it I don't, I don't know how that pairs up against what you're seeing uh it's a it's about the same if we're going after the enterprise we try not to go after the enterprise we specialize in industrial control systems and that's where we try to stay but occasionally there are times where 
you have to pivot from corporate to control system environments. Uh, three to five, that's about right. We, we use it as a tool to show possibility. We don't use it as a tool to be a metric all by itself. Um, and, and I think that's where we're coming from as the vendor is we know you're going to click on stuff. It, it's a matter of time, but we're going to show you what we can do with some custom tools maybe and some open source tools. But then from there, we're going to continue the pen test or the engagement elsewhere. Yeah. One thing um, that I've been trying to harp on more the last probably year or so is the reporting rate. So working with the organization to, you know, track click rate because that's, you know, important enough to know, but also, you know, be in communication where I want to know, you know, how the very first report to the help desk or security or whoever, when did that come in? Timestamp that against the overall campaign. And then also track how many people we sent the email to reported that in to security. Uh, you know, so looking at if we're sending an email to 100 people, you know, and it's spread out over, uh, you know, sent pretty quickly in, in a burst. Did the first person report it within, say, five minutes to security? Um, you know, and that's important for me to track because then we can say, well, what what's your response process look like? Because that would have started five minutes after that first email hit the end user. You can then start going through the server, who else got this message, who else got similar messages and start your overall response process. Uh, and then the same reason for tracking the number of reporters, because maybe when that real social engineering attack comes in, maybe they only send it to three people. And if folks are being trained to just delete the email versus report it, if three people were sent it, two simply saw it, said, oh, that's junk, deleted it, but the third person fell for it, you know, you as a security department have no clue that, you know, that attack just took place. You can also couple these attacks where we're talking purely from like a, a personnel point of view of exploiting that trust. Another way we can think about it is if we're utilizing tools that do any outbound communication uh, once inside the network, once that, um, personnel clicks on that email, on that link, or whatever, uh, the organization should have a way to identify, detect, and respond to, you know, let's just say I, I drop a macro, and the macro doesn't create a reverse connection, but it sends your hash credentials, SMB, uh, net NTLM v2 credentials out to my web server you know, did the organization see that? Like, did you block that SMB outbound? Or or even if it wasn't SMB outbound, let's say I just, I take it and I encapsulate it in a different type of message or a different type of protocol, sorry. Uh, were you able to see that? Did that look malicious to you? Um, there's also other tests to go along the, the principles of identify, detect, protect, and respond. Yeah, for sure. And that actually the, the credential item is why I had mentioned 
the instant messaging beforehand, because now with so many folks working remotely, you know, you're probably joining meetings on three or four different meeting platforms each day. And, you know, there's the chance that folks are sending malicious um, hyperlinks through those chat applications. And depending on how, you know, the corporate network is set up, you might be allowing those password hashes, those connections outbound. Uh, Hopefully not, but, you know, it's something that you might be doing. Uh, and folks might not even know, you know, they clicked on something malicious. Right, right. So what's your go-to scenario? Like we've already spoken about like the CISO scenario and the macros and the credentials. And you just spoke about kind of like Zoom meetings and stuff like that. Is there anything else that you've been identifying that like, hey, man, this works really well? Obviously something that you can disclose. Yeah. Um, I mean, more often than not, um, gossipy scenarios tend to work really well. Um, so looking at, um, you know, something HR related and almost the, you know, accidental send to all, and then follow that up a few minutes later with a retraction request tends to, to get pretty good results for me. So you send out something, um, you know, that that's, not intended for a full distribution and then send that second email saying, I'm so sorry that was sent by accident. Please delete, you know, the email and don't read the attachment because folks may see the first one and say, Oh, that looks like spam and delete it. But then that retraction request a lot of times brings folks back to that message saying, Oh, maybe that was real. I need to go take a look at that. Are we talking about bonus attachments? bonuses can be a a really good one. Uh, People tend to get curious about that. Um, Yeah. I mean, anything that's, you know, almost that, like um, I'm not supposed to see this or or know this tends to drive that curiosity through the roof and people, you know, more often than not tend to fall for that. Yeah. I like bonuses. Another one that I like to do is new hires especially if it's for um, a position that you've identified your target has that same position. It's, it's really a, a mind meld, right? It's just like, no, how, how can you send me this new hire that I didn't know about that has the same position as me? I find that that works just as well. Oh, interesting. I was thinking when you first said new hire, something like, hey, welcome, John Doe to the company, but you're saying specifically uh, almost like a replacement for someone. Hey, I didn't know we had Jane Doe joining our department next week. Right. Exactly. Jane Doe, Jane Doe joining our department in my position. Right. Like, like, interesting. Yeah. Like it, it, what it does is creates fear. Right. And (laughs) yeah, average, for for people listening, adversary tactics, it, it's all about breaking trust and messing with people's emotions, whether it's creating fear, um, anxiety, uh, happiness. You know, if you think about your phishing emails that come in, you want a million dollars or you're getting a million dollars, boom, happiness or fear if you're in, let's say, debt or anything like that. The next thing is, um, you know, 
you won. Congratulations. We're sending out Dunkin' Donuts gift cards to, you know, 10 finalists of the company. Uh, click here, claim your gift card. Thank you for being a valuable member of the organization. Again, happiness. And this one I just said is like fear. It's like fear of being replaced. I find that fear is the best emotion to tap into when trying to fish and social engineer individuals. Not, not, in, not in person. It's not good to use fear in person because when you're in person and you're trying to convey something or you want somebody to do something, they have to feel good about you in order to do that overt act. But with phishing emails, people sitting behind their computers, fear motivates more than happiness and joy. Yeah, I mean, the, the happiness, the gift card scenario, you know, who doesn't want to take a one question survey to get a $5 coffee gift card? And especially if you do like, like real easy, like Google Sheets or something like that, or not uh, Sheets, uh, uh, Google Survey or whatever. Right. Like, it, it just is so easy because people utilize that all the time. HR utilizes that all the time when taking surveys. We, we get surveys at work and my boss has to send out an email to us before he sends out the survey saying the survey's coming in, it's legitimate because that's just how prevalent phishing emails with surveys are. Yeah, that's, yeah, I like that. I might steal that for my next project. Do it, do it for like, uh, it, the first time is hard because you don't know what to say, but after you get like that first successful attempt, um, do it for like another few more times after and, and come back, come back to the podcast and tell us, tell us, uh, you know, the success story, if you had success story. Okay. Fair enough. Um, tooling wise, what are you usually using for your fishing? Um, for a few years, we were using like real big organizations, fish me, know before I found that man, the setup for it is ridiculous. Like, like back when we were using it, you had to like whitelist their domain and stuff like that. And if your target was possibly it personnel, like that doesn't work because they're going to, if they have change control, they're going to see the change control. Oh, by the way, we're implementing you know, this web filtering rule. So I ended up doing, rolling my own actually. So purchasing domain names that are akin to what I'm trying to do. Uh, sometimes it's in regards to getting VPN credentials. So I'll get like a, like I'll burn my domain name uh, because it's already been flagged, like securedgateway.org. Uh, is a is is one that I use because when it when the when the target clicks on the link and they get popped up to something that says securedgateway.org, especially .org, that's a good one, or .net is another good one, um, and it has everything they need from a VPN standpoint. I, it just it legitimizes everything. Uh, I find that with DNS names, they need to be abstract enough to mean a lot of things, but specific enough 
so that when they read it, they understand what it might imply. Yeah, and that will also help. That's like the, they get better with age, right? So then you can hold on to that domain for a while and it'll fall off of the new domains list and things like that, that you know a lot of organizations will use for filtering out spam. Right, exactly. And if you roll your own domain, you roll your own uh, web server, you can set up all your mail records and stuff like that appropriately. Uh, you you can have something pretty resilient and and when when emails from your domain get flagged as fished as phishing attempts um there are some tools open source tools out there that you can utilize to pull that category away from that domain uh, i've done it a few times it's a pain it depends on who like uh semantic i think is a pain to kind of pull that information from maybe it's another vendor but you can pretty easily switch it so it's no longer phishing it's just you know entertainment or whatever um but definitely rolling my own another there are a few other tools i utilize like the social engineering toolkit that's pretty good um mixed with uh, the unicorn python script to create a HTA file. So HTA files is HTML executables. So it executes, if you're going after Windows computers, it executes the binary that runs uh, Internet Explorer, something along the lines of that. But uh, if you're creating HTA file, files, that's really good. Uh, building custom HTA files, that's files that's trying, that I'm trying to go towards that role in my own custom tools. Um, commodity tools are really good to see if your current detections and uh, technical tools are identifying open source malicious type activity. But when we're trying to really emulate an adversary, I, I'm talking about like nation state stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're rolling our own tools and building that capability out for when uh, our clients, asset owners, are saying, we think we've reached a maturity to, you know, maybe defend or identify uh, a nation state adversary. And you're like, okay, well, we have certain tools that we utilize for these types of engagements, and we're going we're gonna to roll with those. How about you? What, what are you guys using? Uh, so a, a couple things there. Uh, one of them, commercial side that I have been really happy with, and it's fairly low cost, is uh, Lucy Security, L-U-C-Y. Um, they're you know a, a really reasonably priced tool um, that you can use, and you know folks can use in their own organization to conduct some testing. Uh, and then I'm also a fan of GoFish as far as providing a, an open source alternative. I actually just saw um, some really interesting training from Patrick. I'm going to butcher his last name, La Laverty. Um, you know, put out some really good um, speaking points and tips on using GoFish as far as getting things up and running and running your own phishing campaigns that way. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure he's presenting it 
again, but the, he also organizes or co-organizes the Layer 8 Conference, uh, which is a conference dedicated to social engineering. Um, and, you know, they'll be online this year. So that's another one folks should check out if they're looking to you know, either see some new tips or tricks or understand how to better perform some of these tests. Right. I like that. And there's just, uh, we're getting close to, I don't know, we're like 40 minutes or something like that. Uh, we're getting close to the end. There's something that you just said that I want to touch on before we kind of close out this episode. Organizations can test themselves. I think that's, that's a, a good key point. You don't always need to hire the experts outside your organization to do some of this work. You can do a lot of the groundwork yourself prior to, you know, having you, Sean, or me come in and test the detections and response and their cybersecurity posture up until that point. Um, I just wanted to touch upon that real quick. Yeah, no, I think that's great. If you can get something up and running, knock out the low-hanging fruit first, and then you'll get more value out of the third parties. Right, exactly. So, uh, I'm, that's all I got, man. How about you? Yeah, that's it. I'll, um, it was kind of a, a last minute idea to mention the layer eight conference, but I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If folks are interested, uh, with the coronavirus stuff going on, uh, it'll be remote. So it's on a Saturday in June. I'm totally blanking on the date, uh, but we'll link to it. If folks are looking for, some online training. Right. Cool. All right. Awesome. I don't, I don't have anything else, man. I will talk to you later. All right. See you. Thanks guys. Bye.